I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Good morning, Prakaptan. I hope you are well. Before we dive into Enchiridion 3 today, I thought I'd ask you to support this show if you're not already. You can do this in a few ways. You can become a paying subscriber by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash members. Sorry for those of you who already are, who are hearing this. You're probably like, oh, I already am. Shut up, Tanner. It's only $2.99 a month, though, and you get rid of ads, and we'd love to have you do that for us. It actually helps us tremendously. If you already support in that way, or if you can't afford to support in that way, you can support us in other ways. For example, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or Podchaser.com. If you've done neither of these things and you have absolutely no intention of doing so, you could also make, if you feel so inclined, a one-time donation to our efforts by going to stoicismpod.com forward slash donate. And donation money goes right back into the production, so it's helpful in all kinds of ways. Anyway, any of those things are appreciated, as is sharing this podcast with your friends or family. We'd love to have a million listeners one day, and with your help, maybe we'll get there. Okay, thanks for tolerating that. Let's dive into Enchiridion 3. Here it is. With regard to whatever objects give you delight, are useful, or are deeply loved, remember to tell yourself of what general nature they are, beginning from the most insignificant things. If, for example, you are fond of a specific ceramic cup, remind yourself that it is only ceramic cups in general of which you are fond. Then, if it breaks, you will not be disturbed. If you kiss your child or your wife, say that you only kiss things which are human, and thus you will not be disturbed if either of them dies. So what he's saying here is if your kid dies, just remember you're fond of kids in general and not this kid in particular. That sounds pretty harsh, right? I mean, damn, Epictetus, you're coming out of the gate like someone who doesn't have kids. Side note, I don't know if Epictetus actually did have any kids, so I'm Googling, and that's interesting. Epictetus did, later on in life, adopt the child of a friend, who I think died, although I can't confirm that, saving that child from almost certain death. He raised this kid, unsure if that kid was male or female, with a woman, potentially his wife, but we're not sure if it was his wife. So Epictetus must not be saying, meh, kids die, it happens, since he viewed it as appropriate in his life to adopt a child to save it from unnecessary death. 
So Epictetus is harsh in Enchiridion 3, but he doesn't seem like a callous man in practice if we're to take this story as true. He must recognize that preventing death when appropriate is preferred, that death is dispreferred when there's an option to live, at least in the case of his adopted child, it would seem. I'll admit it is funny to imagine grumpy old Epictetus looking after a kid. I'm imagining him giving a lecture and there's just this kid tear assing around his classroom and he's trying to not snap. I like that visual, although it probably never happened. This is one of the sources for the Latin maxim premeditatio malorum, or the premeditation of evils. The idea being that if we desensitize ourselves to those dispreferred things that might happen to us or maybe probably even are likely to happen to us, we make it less shocking or difficult to endure those things when they do happen. Epictetus is, again, being very harsh here, perhaps expecting too much in just how well-practiced someone can be in desensitizing themselves to their child dying, for example, but he's trying to make us stronger for later. He doesn't want us to lose our minds and become useless members of the cosmopolis if something terrible like our children dying actually happens to us. We can't be much use to ourselves or existence as a whole if we're so sad we don't get out of bed. This is part of Stoicism, getting our philosophy straight in our heads before trauma happens along one day and retards our ability to endure. Stoicism seems perhaps obvious and easy to someone with no or minimal trauma because they are like a new shoe being polished. It will be easier to polish a new shoe because what wear is there? What tarnish exists on a new shoe? A bit of dust, maybe, but nothing else, really. But what of an old pair of boots? What of the person who has had a lifetime of trauma and has never known stoicism and is introduced to it after decades of advice and practice that isn't virtue-centric? How abhorrent will Stoicism seem to that pair of boots? And by boots, obviously, I mean humans, because boots, as far as we know, aren't sentient or concerned with virtue. This power, coincidentally, is why we have to be careful about introducing philosophies or religions or ideologies to those who are too young. Stoicism is a way to shield yourself from trauma because it trains your brain to view traumatic things as indifferent things and therefore prevent them from being traumatic in the first place. So obviously it's better to raise that shield for the first time under the non-existent weight of a life without trauma, far easier when you're young, than under the oppressive weight of a life that's been traumatic for ages. But psychologically speaking, and I think Donald Robertson would be better to add clarification on this. Maybe I'll have to have him back on the podcast sometime soon. The same thing is true if you're trying to brainwash someone. You're exploiting the same sort of, I guess we could call it a weakness, or an undeveloped feature of the human brain. Tell a child they'll burn in hell if they don't pray to Jesus six times a day, and you shroud them in a belief they don't yet know enough to reject. They don't have any experience that would suggest to them your demands were worth questioning. The same thing is true with instilling resilience, which Stoicism does as a side effect of instilling a desire to pursue virtue. If you instill resilience in someone before they need it, there's nothing working against your efforts to do so. But if that person has a lifetime of trauma and misfortune, it will be much harder to instill an idea that will seem to them essentially like a request to just get over their trauma instead of what it is which is an attempt to correct the misfortune of them not being properly educated, re resilience, in the first place. 
This has serious consequences then. So walking the tightrope between we need our kids to be resilient and we're brainwashing our kids is challenging, as walking any tightrope would be. Do you start preaching virtue and stoicism when they're three? Do you buy them only Marcus Aurelius toys? Do you make their first book a stoic coloring book? Do you brainwash them to be stoics? Is that for the greater good? No, I don't think so. But I do think introducing virtue and resilience can be done without stoicism and without too heavy a hand. You can just ask questions. You can choose to highlight the importance of these things over here instead of those things over there. When trying to identify whether or not hidden planets exist within a solar system that, for example, we've discovered for the first time, do you know the way that astrophysicists figure that out? They look for perturbations in the orbits of planets they can already see. If a planet, a hidden planet, is there, it will curve space-time in such a way that when it passes the planet they can see, that planet will wobble a bit. I'm simplifying it, of course, because I'm not an astrophysicist, so take all this with a large grain of salt. And this suggests to them where they might look to find that quote-unquote invisible planet. It's something like the game Battleship, I suppose. We can do the same thing with our kids, re virtue and resilience. We don't have to tell them virtue and resilience are important. We can just speak to them in ways that suggest such things to them. These suggestions might allow us to instill a few virtue-centric attributes in our young ones without outright hijacking their autonomy and taking advantage of the fact that their rational faculties are incredibly impressionable. I'm not entirely sure how we got to child-rearing advice. I don't yet have any children of my own, so I'm the wrong person to be giving any such advice, but I hope that this episode has become useful to you in some way because I've reached the end of my tangential thoughts on Enchiridion 3. So thank you for listening. I appreciate your loyalty to this podcast greatly. And until next time, take very good care of yourself. 